On the way to me, take one. Hi, my name is Amanda Reyes, and I'm a film historian, an academic, and the editor and co-author of Are You in the House Alone? A TV Movie Compendium, 1964 to 1999. So, as you might be able to guess by the title, I'm a really big fan of the made-for-TV movie. But also, you may have caught that the title is focused on genre films, and so it's not often that I get asked to talk about small screen dramas. So I am beyond excited to be here discussing one of my favorites, Freedom. Now that originally aired on May 18th, 1981 on ABC. And of course, here is Mayor Winningham singing On My Way to Me, which was written by the great Janice Ian. So Ian composed six songs for this film, three of which she re-recorded for herself, which appeared on releases throughout the 90s. Um, Winningham's versions of these songs were actually never released in any commercial format, which is absolutely a crying shame because they are really lovely. You know, I remember seeing Freedom for the first time sometime in the mid-1980s when it reran on my local station. So I was a teenager at the time, I had a lot of insomnia issues, which I still have, and I was channel surfing at like 2 in the morning and I caught the movie partway in and I actually didn't know the title of it for years. But it always stuck with me, you know, I fell in deep, deep love with Mayor Winningham, who plays Libby, because the character was, you know, the teen I always wanted to be, and I think the music and the story really stayed with me. And years later, I got to revisit it, and obviously it's lost none of its charm, uh, but I was older, and I found that I could see the world both through Libby's idealistic eyes, and also through those of her mother as well. Jennifer Warren's performance as the weary but loving Rachel Bellow is every bit as good and every bit as marvelous as Winningham's Libby. And I think that's what makes freedom so good. I think it has this universal approach to the complicated, intimate worlds of mothers and daughters. Um, it's timeless, right? And Freedom has this kind of meta element to it. Um, you know, it was written by noted screenwriter Barbara Turner and is based on her real life experiences raising her daughter Carrie, sometimes known as Carrie Ann, I'm calling her Carrie here. And I think there's a documentary quality to the film, particularly in the carnival scenes. So, you know, it's a truly fascinating and wonderful and emotional film, and there's a lot to talk about, um, including thinking about where freedom fits along the spectrum of the made-for-television movie, which by 1980 was going pretty strong. Um, and the focus was actually starting to shift away from genre productions. And, you know, it makes freedom kind of this really wonderful time capsule because it's certainly not an anomaly in the world of TV movies, which often explored the world of mothers and daughters, um, and you know, families in general, or perhaps more importantly, the changing face of family, but the way it does it is really unique and, and really great. So, you know, I just mentioned small screen genre movies a moment ago, and they do tend to get all of the attention when we look back on the history of the TV movie. And certainly the made for TV drama film gets recognized, it does. I mean, let's face it, uh, we all know The Burning Bed, right? Which is about spousal abuse and which was Farrah Fawcett at her best. Or something like The Day After, which is of course possibly the best known made for TV movie, I think because of how it presented America with some truly terrifying imagery of the devastation of nuclear war as we were living through the Cold War. But mostly the drama TV movie is I think all too often taken as a throwaway product or something lesser than to say even the genre counterparts which were honestly facing their own uphill battle in terms of finding recognition among theatrical horror films and thrillers. And you know in her 1971 book Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, Pauline Kael wrote a little bit about what I believe to be the general perception of television for mass audiences. So she said quote, we almost never think of calling a television show beautiful or even complaining about the absence of beauty because we take it for granted that television operates without beauty." End quote. 
So historian Gary Edgerton uses that quote in his essay, High Concept, Small Screen, Reperceiving the Industrial and Stylistic Origins of the American TV Movie, which is a mouthful, but it's a great essay. And he mostly agrees with Kale's statement while also exploring what makes the TV movie something of note. The Kale quote to me is vital because as a television historian and as an academic, um, I find it both compelling and absolutely frustrating. You know, there's no denying that television is first and foremost an industry. The TV movie did not arise out of some notion um, of bringing art to the masses. But while the TV movie felt like a sound business decision for the networks, the filmmakers often approached each project as just that. They were making a film. A film with specific constructs, right? Absolutely. But something that might speak to audiences in a way that the theatrical film could not. And I think that's what makes movies like Freedom so important. And as an aside, I think all TV movies embrace artistry. So, you know, don't get on my social media and yell at me. I love them all. But let me give you a little context. Um, when thinking about the made-for-TV movie, I think it's important to remember that the networks tended to place a focus on female characters and female-centric stories. You know, the most desired demographic for the networks were women aged 18 to 49. This was because prior to this era, and of course leading into the 70s and the early 80s when this was made, women were more often than not housewives and the largest consumer in the household. So advertisers wanted to see their products marketed on programs they knew women would be watching. So because of this focus on female audiences, these films sought to construct a relatable reflection of the spaces that the telefilms were being viewed in. So we saw a lot of movies dealing with domestic issues. Um, and so a lot of my thoughts are going to be built on the cultural uh, theorist named Elaine Rapping. Her amazing book movie of the week, Private Stories, Public Events, um, is the first serious work I can think of on the made-for-TV movie in terms of applying a heavy theoretical lens to her analysis. Um, but first... Before we dive in, I'd like to talk about some of the actors in this scene. So there's Michael Talbot there on the right. Um, he would have been pretty recognizable at this time for starring in Carrie. He's in The Initiation of Sarah, which starred Tony Bill, who is, of course, in this. Um, and uh, he's a wonderful face. But next to him is Randy Brooks playing the social worker. So Brooks, to us, would be pretty famous now. But at the time, this was a really early role for him. Um, but he did appear in a few TV movies in the early 80s, including Scared Straight, another story, uh, which was the sequel to Scared Straight from 1980. He was in Senior Trip in 1981, um, which is the same year this aired. And he was in a pilot a couple years later for the short-lived series Renegades, which starred Patrick Swayze and was sort of like a precursor to 21 Jump Street. And Brooks was a regular on that short-lived series as well. And I watched every episode and I loved it, which is why I think maybe I'm so in love with Randy Brooks. But he appeared in a lot of stuff, you know, like Reservoir Dogs, A Million Ways to Die, but TV was really where he found most of his work. And here's Bill Morey walking out of the office with Rachel, that's her lawyer. Um, he looks pretty beleaguered, right? It's a great little performance he has here in his couple scenes. And you probably recognize Morey from a thousand different things, but in 1981 he was working hard. Um, his best known work to me in 1981 would probably be his appearance in This House Possessed. And also he made his debut as Leo Wakefield on the hit drama Dallas, which I love. Um, and he appeared in Happy Days, the TV movies Crisis at Central High, The Violation of Sarah McDavid, and Callie and Son. And that's just 1981 for him. So, of course, Freedom is also a very early starring role for Mayor Winningham. But she already had a pretty good working relationship with the filmmakers. Um, she had co-starred alongside Dennis Weaver and Kurt Russell in the TV movie Amber Waves, which premiered the year before in 1980. 
Um, she won an Emmy for her role as Weaver's daughter, Marlene. And as I mentioned, um, the film was directed by Joseph Sargent, uh, who is the director of Freedom. Um, Amber Waves was produced by Phil Mandelker, who also produced this TV movie. Both have fascinating telefilm careers, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in a bit. But between making Amber Waves and Freedom, Winningham appeared in a few different things, um, including starring in a harrowing telefilm um, about teenage runaways called Off the Minnesota Strip. And I'm bringing this up here because Off the Minnesota Strip actually also begins its film in a jail. So I think that's kind of interesting. And I'm not really sure why Off the Minnesota Strip isn't as well known as a film like Born Innocent because I think it's just as stark and just as shocking. But also, I want to point out the look, the uh, image of bars right here is really fascinating to me because it's also recalling that even at home, Libby's in prison, right? And I think that's what the film's trying to get across here at the beginning of um, our first act. Anyway, in Minnesota Strip, uh, Winningham's character becomes a teenage runaway turned hooker who's arrested and sent home for being underage. Um, she finds it difficult to reacclimate back into her home life, and um, both Freedom and Off the Minnesota Strip are about lost young women trying to find their way, although the roles are clearly incredibly diverse, um, and Winningham is, of course, excellent in both roles. So the producer of Off the Minnesota Strip was Meta Rosenberg, and that's a name that might be familiar if you watch The Rockford Files. She produced that. And Rosenberg spoke about casting Winningham, Winningham pardon me, in the part and told the Archive of American Television, quote, she read and she was perfect. She was about 18, and I said to her, how come you know so much about this little girl? And she said, I have a really good feeling in my heart about girls like that. Well, she was so good, I couldn't believe it, and she had done practically nothing in her life in film, so naturally we hired her, end quote. And I think Rosenberg sums up Winningham's appeal so nicely in, in that quote that I just read. Um, she's just a natural, she's an intuitive actress, and she just kind of embodies these characters, and they feel so real to me. Oh, but briefly here, I wanted to mention, here's Roy Thinnes, who plays Libby's uh, loving but absentee father, Michael. Um, Thinnes is probably best known for his genre work, which includes the cult hit TV series, The Invaders, as well as his TV movies, The Norless Tape, Satan's Go for Girls, Horror at 37,000 Feet, Black Noon, all of those he did prior to Freedom. About a decade after he starred, um, I'm sorry, about a de decade after this, he starred in the reboot of Dan Curtis's popular gothic daytime soap, Dark Shadows. This time though, it was produced for primetime. And Thinnis has had an exceptional career both in daytime and in primetime. Um, he was an a early cast member on General Hospital, perhaps even an original cast member, and he appeared in several other soaps throughout his career. And he's, uh, you know, in a much more supporting role here, but Thinnis's image was actually used pretty liberally in the promotional material sent to newspapers to promote freedom. And I found um, this really interesting caption in one of the promo images in the newspapers that I trolled through to put this uh, commentary together. Uh, it says that the parents quote-unquote haggle over Libby and to me I think Libby sees herself as like an object in her parents bitter divorce right just another piece of property and I think this really brings home the idea of a, this kind of discouragement and displacement and not just for Libby but something that many kids would have felt as divorce became more and more prominent in the 80s so this is really a film about fragmentation and disaffected youth right and so Joseph Sargent the director he tackled similar themes um, before he made Freedom. In 1971, he delivered a pretty troubling and um, disturbing and interesting critique on both the counterculture lifestyle and the banality of suburbia in a TV movie he made titled Maybe I'll Come Home in the Spring. So that one starts Sally Field. Um, she plays a young woman returning home after living some time in a hippie commune and she finds that that lifestyle just isn't really right for her anymore. And 
She returns back home, but her life with her parents is wrought with its own problems. Um, and I will say, I don't think Sargent really plays favorites with either side. Um, and like Libby, you know, Field's character is really struggling to find her place in the world. So in a lot of ways, Freedom, Maybe I'll Come Home in the Spring, Off the Minnesota Strip, all of those films share this kind of kinship in that these are films about a brokenness. You know, while the families are still together in Maybe I'll Come Home in the Spring and Off the Minnesota Strip, those families are broken from within, right? And extremely dysfunctional. Here, I think the family's broken in a more traditional sense of how we think of broken families. You know, Rachel is living, um, you know, with a single mother who has this very tumultuous relationship with her ex-husband. And she also has a boyfriend that she's quite close to, and he spends a lot of time in the space that Libby once would have shared with her father. So the families in Minnesota Strip and Freedom, I think, offer these kind of astute reflections on the domestic space as it was coming into the Reagan era, which is a time when the country was looking more and more towards a return, right, to conventional and traditional values, but also coming in a period when so much had already happened and changed in the 70s, right, as we would have seen in Maybe I'll Come Home in the Spring which I find to be a film that actually sort of predicts some of these issues that we were going to explore later in the movies I just mentioned. So just to kind of bring this home, you know, a few days after Freedom aired, Backstage Magazine published an article on how ABC was seeking to, quote, capitalize on what it perceives to be the mood of the country, a mood perhaps best embodied in the landslide election of President Ronald Reagan, end quote. So there was this conference, right, for ABC and its affiliates where Fred Pierce, the executive vice president of the network, stated, Quote, our primary goal is the revitalization of prime time. Our new schedule reflects something important that's happening in the country right now. There's an evolving mood based on a renewal of traditional values, home and family, courage and honesty, respect for authority, and teamwork, end quote. So ABC would invest over a billion dollars into programming for the season um, after Freedom aired. And it ended up being kind of a mixed bag with shows like the ultra-violent strike force getting a green light. So that show was created out of a growing concern for, quote, personal safety, the desire for more law and order in a society plagued with crime, end quote. I mean, that's how they promoted it. Very, very melodramatic. And at the time of its release, it was also considered the most violent series to ever air on television, at least according to Lee Winfrey of the Knight Rider News Service. But I will say, I watched every episode of it. Um, it's pretty violent. Uh, the first episode is actually about an axe murderer. I remember being not super graphic, but yeah, really steeped in violence. And I think in retrospect, um, the series was offering these kind of mixed messages by saying violence can ultimately defeat violence, you know, as long as it's done in the guise of law and order. ABC's TV movie lineup was pretty interesting as well, and almost half of the films promoted at the conference actually did not go into production. One in particular really struck me. Um, it was titled A Matter of Decency, which was about, quote, one community's anguished efforts to come to grips with the mushrooming blight of pornography, end quote more melodrama. Um, William Blinn and Jerry Thorpe were on board to produce that, but it just never came to fruition. Another unproduced telefilm was titled In Our Hands, and that would look at the psychology of rape, and the story featured a group of women all assaulted by the same person banding together to prevent their rapists from attacking again. It was kind of a precursor, right, to the 1986 theatrical film The Ladies Club. So we can see already that these films, um, by the titles and by their very brief taglines, are making the private public, particularly with this rape one, um, and they're, talk they're tackling issues that I think affect women and families, right? In terms of a matter of decency, I think it's about how there's a corruption of families and a corruption of values, right? When we get into the world of adult filmmaking and how that impacts people within the home. 
Um, but of the produced telefilms which were promoted at this conference, there was an equally strong focus on female-centric and or family-related stories. So two movies that stood out to me were Fantasies and Sizzle. Um, both are about independent women. Fantasies is a personal favorite of mine. It stars Suzanne Plachette as a strong-willed producer of a nighttime soap being stalked by a crazed killer. Um, it ended up ranking in the top 10 highest-rated TV movies for the 1982-1983 season. And Sizzle starred Lonnie Anderson as a small-town girl who grows up real fast when um, she has this prison sentence and she comes out and she comes back to the world seeking vengeance on the people who did her wrong. Again, um, that sounds amazing. Uh, Sizzle featured Roy Thinnis, who plays Libby's dad here, and it landed in the top 20 for the season. Uh, so I think ABC was paying attention to its demographic and it really catered to their needs um, with these heavily uh, female-centric stories. However, again, the family was an important component. Um, uh, there was a movie that came out, it was originally called Genesis, which was about a young couple deciding to become the first parents of a baby um, developed completely outside of the womb. Um, it was uh, a movie presented at this conference, and the film was eventually retitled Tomorrow's Child, produced by Joseph Sargent, who directed this, and it was based off his original screenplay. Um, that one didn't rate as high. It came in at number 61 for the highest rated TV movies of that year. But there were a couple of interesting family-centric titles in the top 10, including Divorce, A Love Story with Jane Curtin and Tom Selleck, and A Wedding on Walton's Mountain. The Walton's movies always did crazy well um, throughout the history of their TV film career. Um, at the time, ABC was reconfiguring its programming schedule. There were already several movies depicting the complex and frustrating relationships between mother and daughter living in the then-contemporary society. All were reflection on the world as we were living it, right? I think television's fast production turnarounds, along with the heavy desire to mirror the homes people would be watching their program on, kind of gave a medium um, a leg up on hitting hot topic issues. So they produced movies that captured the moment as we were living it, which is another thing that separates it from their theatrical counterparts. So, I mean, let's just look at this for example. Here's a fairly realistic depiction of a divorced couple who are as far apart um, from agreeing with each other as anybody. and. In fact, they may purposely disagree with each other just out of spite. And Libby can see this, and you know, like I said, she feels like a pawn in this relationship, and I think that's what keeps her leaving home all the time. So Elaine Rapping wrote about why the domestic space would become a prevailing aesthetic um, of the made-for-TV movie, and she suggested that, quote, television is different from film in a lot of important ways. Its placement in the private home, where it speaks directly to the presumed family audience, its symbiotic, economic, and structural relationship to commercial advertising, and its immediacy dictates its particular generic rules, end quote, right? So you can see domestic spaces, female-centric stories, and family issues constantly emerged um, in themes and in premises, and were at the forefront of the types of stories you were likely to see on television. And at the same time, I don't think rap rapping fully accounted for how to introduce non-traditional family structures um, through a kind of coding. So I'd like to take a look at that. So if we could just briefly think about divorce and the divorce rates of the 1970s and 80s. So it was inevitable that the topic would find its way into the made-for-TV movie. Um, according to an article titled How Divorce Rates Have Changed Over the Last 150 Years by Frank Olito, he gave some stats, right? He said in 1970, the divorce rate was 3.5. And then by 1972, it had jumped to four divorces for every 1,000 Americans. In 1976, it went to five. And by 1970. Of nine, excuse me, the rate was 5.3 per 1,000 Americans, with 1,193,062 divorces that year alone. So, of course, divorce occurs for several reasons, um, and too many to go into, but it's important to note that television in the 1970s explored these issues in many different ways. 
So looking at the early 1970s, the TV movie might appear antithetical in a way in comparison to episodics in that it seemed willing to confront some of the bigger issues, like in Maybe I'll Come Home in the Spring. Whereas, you know, in the early 70s, we had a lot of shows like The Brady Bunch, which seemed to never really address realistic family problems. But that's not to say that the topic was completely dismissed, right? With shows like The Brady Bunch, which is about a blended family, and also shows like The Partridge Family, where the mother was a widow, these films were, or I'm sorry, these programs were in a way coded as a way to present the single parent or that blended family structure um, from second marriages to mass audiences. And so as the 70s rolled, rolled on, we began to see like a maturing of that, right? And we saw a pretty great roster of divorced mothers and in sitcoms, including, of course, Ms. Romano on One Day at a Time and Alice Hyatt on Alice, right? So the telefilm kind of went next level with that, I think possibly because it had the freedom, right, to embrace these issues for 90 minutes and then let the audience move along, um, as opposed to hoping that maybe we'd stick around for an entire season. So, for instance, the 1977 TV movie, A Sensitive, Passionate Man, took a really hard look at how alcoholism destroys a marriage and a family. But a more obvious example would be something like Children of Divorce from 1980, which is a clever, almost anthology-like TV movie that looks at how different parents uh, splitting up affects the kids at home. But the topic even seeped into things such as uh, the reunion telefilm Still the Beaver from 1983, where Theodore Cleaver and his perfect utopian landscape of suburbia in the 1950s was rocked, right, as he struggles to bring up his kids after his wife leaves him. So many of these films put an emphasis on how the parent-child relationships were strained during and after a divorce. And here I think we see um, it because we're getting like Libby being emancipated from her parents and looking very much like, a, you know, like a legality, right? Signing these papers as she just did in the previous scene and then just seeing her alone. And um, it's kind of striking to me, this kind of loneliness that permeates her. Um, so, you know, according to Gary Edgerton, the topical telefeature was born in the early 1970s, eventually taking over the then more popular genre fair that was coming out of programs like the ABC Movie of the Week. Um, Edgerton wrote that the growth of the topical telefeature had indeed changed the entertainment landscape of the made-for-television movie forever. Um, older narrative types, such as the westerns and thrillers, were, quote, quickly abandoned in favor and abundance of present-day stories inspired by social controversies, cultural trends, or whatever was on the public agenda. So I also wanted to briefly talk about Heather McAdden, who's in the scene, who plays Libby's younger sister, Jessie. Although she's the youngest cast member, um, Heather McAdams was quite a familiar face on television in the 1980s and into the 90s. Um, and it's possible you might have seen her the year before playing Winningham's sister in, um, off the Minnesota Strip. Uh, but in 1982, she appeared in Little Darlings, which I think is where I first discovered her. And later, as she grew up, um, she'd show up in things like Facts of Life, Quantum Leap, Rags to Riches, Doogie Howser, um, a ton of stuff. She played Celia Ward's daughter on the popular television series Sisters. And during her run on that, she also garnered some notoriety for playing the troubled alcoholic nicknamed Surfer Betty on two episodes of Beverly Hills 9210, which is a, thing, a role I loved her on. Um, and I remember seeing her on a CBS school break titled Sexual Considerations, which is about how sexual har harassment was viewed um, by different students at a high school. Her last on-screen presence um, was actually in 1997 on an episode of Touched by an Angel. But here uh, we have Jennifer Warren and Tony Bill. Uh, Bill was quite uh, the TV movie fixture in this era, and in 1978 he appeared in The Initiation of Sarah, which also featured Michael Talbot, who we saw a few minutes ago, as well as um, Are You in the House Alone, where he played uh, Kathleen Biller's father. Uh, Bill is a fantastic actor and a really fascinating filmmaker. Um, he was already a producer and director at this point in his career, 
Um, in the early 1970s, he actually teamed up with uh, Vernon Zimmerman, who made the 1980 slasher Fade to Black, and they had a production company called Biplane Productions. Um, the first project they did was Zimmerman's Deadhead Miles, kind of an arty film. And um, Bill was a producer on The Sting, right, which starred Paul Newman and Robert Redford, and he produced The Wonderful Going in Style, which was um, featured George Burns, R. Carney, and Lee Strasberg. As a director, uh, Bill's first project came in 1977, so just a few years before this, when he directed a short family special for television titled The Ransom of Red Chief, which is based on an O. Henry story. Um, it had an amazing cast that included Harry Dean Stanton and Joe Spinnell, just a couple years before he terrified us a maniac. Um, and that led to My Bodyguard in 1980 and Six Weeks with Mary Tyler Moore and Dudley Moore in 1982. In 1984, he directed a TV movie called Love Thy Neighbor, which was a huge made-for-TV movie starring Penny Marshall and John Ritter as next-door neighbors who fall in love after their respective spouses run off together. So I mentioned uh, Tony Bill and, and uh, Michael Talbot had worked together previously, but I wanted to talk about some of the crossovers between Mayor Winningham, Joseph Sargent, and the screenwriter Barbara Turner. Um, these three major players have worked quite a bit with each other over the years. So, for instance, aside from Amber Waves and Freedom, Winningham worked with Sargent one more time in 1985 in a TV movie project titled Love is Never Silent, which is about a young woman, played by Winningham, looking after her deaf parents, um, played by Cloris Leachman and Sid Caesar. Uh, Sargent won an Emmy for that. Um, he was actually really active in the deaf community. His wife was left almost completely deaf after a childhood accident. So Winningham worked quite a bit also with the cinematographer Freedom, Donald M. Morgan. He shot this, Amber Waves, off the Minnesota Strip, and a 1990 TV movie titled Love and Lies, Sally Hemings, and American Scandal. Um, and uh, Morgan also shot the infamous after-school episode uh, about drunk driving titled One Too Many, which featured uh, Winningham alongside Lance Guest, Val Kilmer, and Michelle Pfeiffer. Uh, that aired in 1985, and that's kind of an arty after-school special. I really like that one. Um, Barbara Turner worked with Sargent once more in 1992 when he directed Somebody's Daughter, which is a more salacious TV movie that Turner wrote under a pseudonym, um, Lauren Courier. Uh, Some, Somebody's Daughter starred Nicolette Sheridan as an exotic dancer who gets mixed up in murder. Um, but Barbara Turner and Mayor Winningham seem to have had the most prolific collaboration of the main players. Um, Winningham starred in several films which were written by Turner, so aside from Freedom, which was their first project together, Winningham also starred in Eyes of the Sparrow in 1987 and sharing the secret in 2000, as well as appearing in the wonderful and odd and dark TV movie, Those Secrets. Um, and of course, Winningham starred in Georgia in 1995, which co-starred Turner's real-life daughter, Jennifer Jason Lee, and which is a bit of a sequel of sorts in quotes to Freedom. So here we're getting our first look at some of the Carnies, right? And um, they'll have a great impact on Libby's life. I'll go more in depth on them later, but many of the non-speaking and minor Carney roles were given to real-life carnival workers. But of course, this is our first look at Eloy Casados and of course, Peter Horton in a very early role. So Casados is a natural as the freewheeling wannabe playboy Ron. And you know, he had a really nice resume by the time he came on to Freedom. But you know, he actually had no previous uh, professional training when he fell into acting. Um, but he feels like such a natural, um, and he's so, he's so great in everything I've ever seen him in. Anyway, Freedom aired about a year after the film. Carney was released to theaters, and that film, which starred Jodie Foster and Gary Busey, kind of also maintains this kind of documentary vibe to it, right? And that seems par for the course, I think, as carnivals and carnival life showed up in all kinds of things, um, including the B-movie She Freak, which was produced by David F. Friedman, who was a real-life carnival barker, and he was very passionate about carnivals and carnival life, and a lot of the footage of She Freak is actually just people at the carnival walking around. It's, it's a great time capsule, right? Um, but of course, there was also the Fun House, 
um, The Lost Boys has some great carnival footage and some other genre movies. Um, there was a TV movie called Sideshow, which is about a circus. And to a degree, The Death of Ocean View Park from 1979. Although, of course, that's about watching an amusement park get destroyed is what that's about. But it also featured an early performance by Mary Winningham as well. I think what makes Freedom so fascinating is how it approaches carnival life as kind of a non-traditional family unit. Characters even reference it as such. Um, if we're seeing a rise in the divorce rate and changes within the domestic space, then Freedom goes to great pains to explore the notion that we are seeking a family all the time. But what that family looks like will differ from unit to unit, right? But I guess all families start with a love story. So we're about to get into a more um, unconventional one, but one which I always really enjoy. I think uh, Horton and uh, Casados come across, right, as particularly great romantic leads. Uh, but while we're here, here's Taylor Negron. He's got his head down there on the table. Um, he's absolutely one of my favorite faces in Freedom. Um, this was a very early role for him, and I'm already in love. Uh, he appeared in Fast Times Original High, of course, as the pizza guy. He had one line and stole the film. I also know him as a comedian um, and a terribly funny one. Uh, Negron would uh, refer to himself as famish. Uh, referring to being sort of famous adjacent. Um, but he appeared in a number of big films and was always lovable and unforgettable, right? He's in Better Off Dead, Easy Money, One Crazy Summer, Punchline, on and on. Um, he sadly died in 2015. And, um, you know, I remember hearing about that and just being in shock and really sad. He was only 57 years old. But a little before he was cast in Freedom, he splurged on a series of acting classes taught by Lucille Ball. Um, he said that she was so raw in her recollections of her career, and he added that she really paid a heavy price for her fame. So perhaps I think he enjoyed his place in the world of film, you know, being famous. Um, later when thinking about his own career, he said in that funny way that he said everything he said, quote, all I ever wanted was to be a tortured artist who occasionally wore Max Factor Number 2 foundation. Um, and what can I say? This is an early glimpse of a great talent, and we were so lucky. We were so lucky to have him here with us. And, you know, I mentioned that Casados hadn't originally sought out a career in acting. You know, he was an art student at the University of New Mexico, but ended up doing um, a summer at the Golden Horn Theater in New Mexico before he was cast as an extra in The Lawyer, which, you know, that would go on to become sort of the impetus for the television series Petrocelli with Barry Newman. Um, the local paper from his hometown called it his quote-unquote big break, which is adorable. Also that year, Casados would become Desi Arnaz Jr. stand-in for the... Um, uh, New Mexico shot drama Red Sky at Morning, which is an adaptation of Richard Bradford's 1968 novel. That production used quite a few people from Casado's hometown of Albuquerque. So that work quickly led to bigger roles, and at 22 he landed a part in the Walt Disney production Mustang, um, and that same year he was also doing stage work in New Mexico. Um, he appeared in Amber Waves with Winningham, but had already worked closely with the star of Amber Waves, Dennis Weaver, in a TV movie from 1978 titled Ishi, The Land of His Tribe. I'm sorry, the last of his tribe. So screenwriter Barbara Turner was a native New Yorker who began her career as an actress and appeared in a number of projects before she began screenwriting professionally. Her first produced screenplay was um, the theatrical film Death Watch, which was an adaptation of the Jean Genet play, um, which was directed by her then-husband, Vic Morrow. Turner has received a Writers Guild of America nomination for her adaptation of Petulia, which was directed by Richard Lester in 1968, an Emmy nomination for the TV movie The War Between the Tates from 1977. Again, she got an Emmy and another Writers Guild nomination for the HBO movie Hemingway and Gellhorn in 2012, and she won the Christopher Award for Eye of the Sparrow in 1987, which again is one of those projects she worked on with Winningham. In 1995, when Turner was promoting her film, Georgia, um, she discussed her intensive creative process. Um, you know, she said, quote, I do a lot of research, 
So everything is sunk in a kind of truth. People are wonderful. They're extraordinary. They do and say and create extraordinary things. And that's the joy of writing for me. Just going out there for each screenplay and listening to people and learning how they view the world, how they experience life and each other. My thought is why make anything up when it's so wonderful as it is, end quote. And I think research for freedom might have looked a little different for her, you know, since she was basing it on her own relationship and experience with her daughter. Um, Carrie was her name again. For Turner, I'm telling such a personal story and having a bit of a hands-on approach, you know. You so often hear about how the screenwriter isn't really on set for the filming, but during production, Turner uh, was what Winningham referred to as a den mother of sorts, right? Winningham ended up moving in with Turner and lived with a group of real carnival workers as they shot the film. So the carnival workers were people Carrie knew um, and had made friends with when she was on the circuit. One of them was an old boyfriend, um, and he she brought him on, and he came on as a technical director. He has a credit. Um, he's named William Maple, and he would end up marrying Winningham in 1982, and they would go on to have five children together. Winningham recalled the shoot was intense, but also very pleasant. Um, in an interview to promote the film, she said, quote, we get up at six every morning and work really late. We come home, we make a fire, have a big pot of soup, and maybe eight of us would talk about the day's work. It was nice. In another interview, Winningham said, quote, the creative force was there. I was able to concentrate the most ever for me. Usually I just go in and I do it. And according to Jennifer Warren, the real life carnies uh, that were giving advice, uh, you know, made up the minor and non-speaking roles in the film, which I mentioned earlier. She also confirmed uh, the positive uh, working environment and, co and commented in another interview to promote the film. Quote, we got along very well with them because we found out actors and carnies are very close. It's a similar life on a different level. In television, you have to get a film done so quickly that it's hard to do anything but get the job done. And when you've had such a strong feeling connected with it, it's special and it shows. Winningham actually relied heavily on Carrie um, to help her capture that her spirit and to better define the relationship she had with Turner's character, right, played by Warren. Winningham said, quote, I was blessed with an extraordinary working situation. Carrie was there every day. When I needed verification, I could turn to her and she'd set it straight. She wasn't a stickler. She accepted uh, the fact that I was playing her, that I wanted to get her essence, but not to be her. But even before Freedom, Winningham actually had a pretty interesting connection with Turner as she knew her other daughter, Jennifer Jason Lee, through an arts camp that they both attended, right? So in the early 1980s, um, you know, Winningham and Jennifer Jason Lee would kind of explode, right? In different mediums here, television and in film for Jennifer Jason Lee for starring in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. And actually there's an actress in Freedom, Shelley O'Neill, who plays the character Deacon. Um, she had a part in Fast Times as a waitress. And of course we saw Taylor Negron, right? Who's the wonderful pizza delivery guy in that film. And as I mentioned earlier, Winningham was already pretty friendly with Sargent and the producer Phil Mandoker, as well as Freedom Cinematographer Donald M. Morgan. Um, so close that she said while making Amber Wave, she'd actually taken up smoking. And between making that and Freedom, she'd become a pretty heavy smoker. Uh, Morgan actually pulled her aside and told her that she needed to stop. And she said she went cold turkey. Um, she also jokingly said that those three filmmakers referred to her as, quote, America's favorite runaway. And Morgan lovingly called her little one. And you know, Joseph Sargent is a prolific filmmaker, um, probably best known for his theatrical film, The Taking of Pelham 123, but the bulk of his 90 plus projects that he directed were made for TV. So he showed a very early interest in making films uh, in childhood, but he actually started his career as an actor. 
He studied theater in the New School for Social Research, but left the idea of acting behind him and moved into directing. Um, he mostly worked in episodics at the beginning of his career. Um, he directed his first TV movie in 1968, a Cold War drama titled The Sunshine Patriot that starred Dina Merrill and Cliff Robertson. But then in 1970, he directed the classic telefilm Tribes, uh, which is a political TV movie about a hippie who finds himself in the military. You know, it starred Jan Michael Vincent and Darren McGavin. In 1975, Sargent directed the excellent The Night That Panicked America, which recreates the night that Orson Welles' War of the Worlds radio program went out into the airwaves and a ton of people believed that the world was being taken over by aliens. And that's an amazing film, if, especially if you want to see what the early days of radio looks like. There's a great recreation of the radio show in it. Uh, but like Freedom, um, Tribes, Maybe I'll Come Home in the Spring, and The Night That Panicked America, there's a certain documentary-like aesthetic, right? It brings you further into the stories. Oh, okay. oh, yeah, here's Kenny Griswold um, in his one and only scene. Um, again, we've got a cop character. I always think I've seen Griswold in a ton of things, probably because I've seen Freedom and his TV movie, The Calendar Girl Murders, a thousand times. And also he's in the movie Perfect, which is the perfect aerobicizing drama that starred Jamie Lee Curtis and John Travolta. And so it turns out he doesn't have a huge acting resume, um, although he did work sporadically as an actor until the early 2000s. He would end up writing and producing documentaries before he became a real estate developer. Um, and he and his wife, Mimi Kim, are the founders of Chef Dance, which is a five-night dinner event in Park City that works alongside the Sundance Film Festival. And it's actually known for mixing and matching famous and influential guests as dinner partners. So it's people who hadn't normally met each other, but that were like really powerful people having dinner for the first time together. It's a really interesting kind of setup. Um, anyway, back to Sargent. Uh, it would be possible for me to give a full overview of Sargent's uniformly excellent telephone work. Um, because he directed dozens and dozens and dozens of wonderful, well-remembered made-for-TV movies um, that could be political, right? Like with Tribes or Miss Evers' Boys from 1997, which is a docudrama about the horrifying syphilis experiment in Tuskegee, which was conducted on several black men in the 1930s. Or they could be lighter in nature, right? Such as with The Sunshine Patriot or the early 1970s pilot um, Man on a String, which starred Christopher George as a government agent who's run afoul of mobsters. But regardless of the project, uh, I think we can all agree, Sargent always produced the goods, um, no matter the topic or the genre. But his work on family issues was always especially poignant to me. Um, so later, after this, about a decade later, uh, in 1990, Sargent directed a Hallmark Hall of Fame mystery titled Caroline, which starts Stephanie Zembalist as a woman who may or may not be the daughter of a wealthy man who's come to believe his daughter was dead. Caroline struggles to get help for the youngest child in the family who is living with these severe physical and intellectual disabilities. So essentially the family drama is wrapped up tightly in the mystery of Caroline's real identity, but also here in Caroline is a critique of upper middle class living and how families seek to cover up issues rather than deal with them head on, which is something I think we saw um, in Maybe I'll Come Home in the Spring as well. I think freedom fits somewhere in the middle, right? Uh, it's a softer critique of these family issues and it's less about covering up what you don't want to deal with so much as it's about two people who love each other but struggle to understand where the other is coming from. And I loved it that despite that the film is being set around upper middle class sort of bohemian lifestyles, it's very relatable, right? Um, it's, it's more quietly effective than Maybe I'll Come Home in the Spring and I think it relies less heavily on melodrama than Caroline. And there's a certain kind of humanity I think that comes through here. Um, and of course, you know, Jennifer Warren is just excellent in the role. By the way, her hair in this is magnificent. I just want to point that out while I have time. Um, Jennifer Warren came from a show business family. Her mother was an actress and her uncle was an actor and a director. 
Uh, she was working mostly on stage when she was cast alongside Robert De Niro in a movie titled uh, Sam Song, which uh, would have footage added to it later and then retitled The Swap. That one kind of came and went, but you know, they were at the beginning of their careers, and a few years later, Warren landed a breakout role in Night Moves, which starred Gene Hackman. And in between theatrical gigs, uh, she was on Broadway. She appeared in P.S. Your Cat is Dead in 1975, which uh, also featured Tony Masante. That must have been a wonderful production. And um, she did try to hit theatrical films hard, but she felt roles in productions like Slapshot and Ice Castles were really good roles, but hard to come by. Um, in an interview she did in 1990 with the LA Times, Warren said, quote, there just aren't that many roles for strong women. Those that did come along were usually offered to Jane Fonda first. So around the time Warren was cast in Freedom, she was working predominantly in the TV movie field, and she appeared in six TV movies between 1980 and 1983, including Confessions of a Married Man, The Intruder Within, the pilot for the subsequent short-lived series, uh, Paper Dolls, and she did, uh, I think, show up in that series as well, and she was in the really underrated 1984 TV movie, Amazons. Um, and then she did a lot of episodic work afterwards. So in an interview to promote Freedom, Warren said, quote, there are so many good parts for women, parts that are interesting enough that will help build a career. It makes me want to go into production and to try to develop projects for myself. So at the time she made Freedom, um, she had bought the rights to the life story of the first woman to be killed in a coal mining accident. And she was hoping to produce um, it as a cable special, but that project never came to fruition. Um, Warren was a uh, Actually friendly with an actress named Beth Howland, who TV viewers will probably recognize best as Vera from the long-running series Alice, which I've mentioned here prior. Um, they formed a production company called Tiger Rose Productions and produced an Academy Award-winning documentary short film called You Don't Have to Die, based on a young man's battle against cancer. So although Howland seemed to get most of the attention, I think uh, Warren may have... Um, felt very much the same when Helen said in an interview, I produce because there aren't enough acting jobs, you have to create them. So while Helen said she had no interest in directing, Warren would go on to direct two feature films. Um, she did The Beans of Egypt, Maine in 1994 and Partners in Crime in 2000. Um, Warren's last IMDb credit was in 2012 for something called Commencement. Um, her last TV movie appearance was actually in the 1997 thriller Dying to Belong, which starred Hilary Swank and Sarah Chalk. Oh, this is a really fun movie. Um, anyway, interestingly enough, Jennifer Warren found herself in good company because a few television actresses started their own production companies in the 1980s. Um, much like Helen said in that interview, if good roles were to come to these actresses, they'd have to create the parts. So the two other women I think that come to mind instantly for me are Donna Mills and Victoria Principal. Of course, both are known for their nighttime soap work, um, which would be uh, Knott's Landing in Dallas. Um, but they also worked heavily in the made-for-TV movie. You know, Mills in particular, well, they both had filmographies that date back to the 70s, but Mills' filmography is crazy. Her TV movie roster is just a wonderful thing. Um, but in the late part of the 1980s, she founded Donna Mills Productions and starred in several telefilms um, that she had oversight over, including um, the true crime drama An Element of Truth, the sexy thriller Intimate Encounters, and my favorite, The World's Oldest Living Bride Fade, which is a wonderful little romantic comedy. Uh, Victoria Principal also had a production company um, titled Victoria Principal Productions, and she was behind some of her uh, telephone work as well in the later 80s. Um, that included the dark romantic anthology Seduction, Three Tales of the Inner Sanctum, another sexy thriller she did uh, titled Sparks, The Price of Passion, which also co-starred Ted Wass, and a movie uh, Principal actually didn't appear in. Um, it was an eerie mystery titled Midnight's Child. 
And you can tell by the titles that a lot of these are female-centric, right? Particularly the world's oldest living bridesmaid, and I think Midnight's Child have some interest in telling these kind of non-traditional family stories. And so, you know, in those scenes we just saw with Jennifer Warren and um, Mayor Winningham, we've kind of seen the strains of the mother-daughter relationships um, being really brought to home, right? And another TV movie that I think enjoys a really neat relationship with freedom is Like Mom, Like Me, which originally aired on October 22, 1978 on CBS. Um, it's based on a nonfiction book by Sheila Schwartz. The teleplay was actually adapted by her daughter, Nancy Lynn Schwartz. Um, it starred Linda Lavin as a recently separated mom who takes her daughter, played by Christy McNichol, to a new part of town to begin a new life together. Um, McNichol's character hates to see her mom dating, and it creates a rift between the two. But she also becomes a sort of parent figure to Lavin as well, since her mom keeps falling into all these kind of romantic pitfalls and has a really difficult time moving forward. It's a great little movie, um, one of my absolute favorites from that era. Um, everyone's great in it. Uh, it kind of feels like a big budget after school special in a lot of ways. And that's not to diminish like mom like me in any way. Um, it's a message movie, I mean, you can't deny that, but it's sensitive and it, I think it's careful, right, about what it's saying. It also supports Lavin's character really well, showing her as a loving mother and even a good wife, but one that has to move on when she finds out that her husband hasn't been faithful to her. And it's actually a really poignant film. Um, in 1979, Nancy Lynn died suddenly because of an undetected brain tumor, and she was only 27 years old. And so I'm really happy that she got to work with her mom on this project. And so, of course, you know, I see this kinship between freedom and like mom like me and how these mothers and daughters are inviting audiences into their private lives. However, I think what is captured in freedom goes beyond the bonds of a mother-daughter as this film gives us a really great look at carnival life and also presents it as a coming-of-age story. Oh, but real quick, so this is Ray... Uh, Gear Din, and I hope I pronounced that right. And like Roy Thinnes, he was a regular in General Hospital. He played Howie Dawson from 1968 to 1974, and then starred in the short-lived series Thunder in 77. He co-wrote the cult classic The Hollywood Man with the great William Smith, but um, that was his only produced script. He would end up settling into the role of uh, character acting, and um, in 1981 he had several on-screen appearances. Um, he was in Happy Days, White Shadow. He also appeared in the TV movie Midnight Offerings, which I remember him so well in that. Uh, he's always a treat. Um, and he was a feature player in the 1983 telefilm titled Secrets of a Mother-Daughter, uh, which originally aired on CBS on October 4th, 1983. And that starred Captain Ross as a beautiful widow with a lovely 20-something-year-old daughter played by Linda Hamilton. Um, Hamilton's character doesn't believe that Ross's character ever loved her father, so when um, Ross begins to date again, Hamilton takes it pretty hard. She's pretty critical of her. Unfortunately, though, Hamilton has developed a crush on Ross's new boyfriend, played by Michael Murray, not realizing that he's dating her mom. And of course, Hamilton ends up having sex with him, as you do. Um, and as you can guess, things get complicated, right? So like Freedom and like Mom Like Me, um, Secrets of a Mother-Daughter was written by a woman named Lurian Leggett. And while it's pretty melodramatic and soapy and amazing, um, I do think it has a lot of heart. You know, the characters are pretty likable and well drawn out, uh, particularly Hamilton's character. The resolution of the film, too, shows that the mother and daughter will always rise above the soapiest of situations and find their middle ground. Um, and Secrets of a Mother-Daughter was also directed by a woman. Her name was Gabrielle Beaumont. And while it was fairly unusual to see female writers in this era, although I'm going to talk about a few here in a little bit, um, it is really unusual to see directors. Uh, Beaumont is predominantly an episodic director, but she did direct the dark and tragic docudrama on um, the playmate Dorothy Stratton, who was murdered by her ex-husband in 1980. 
Um, that came out in 1981, starred Jamie Lee Curtis, and it's called Death of a Centerfold, and um, it's amazing. Movies like Like Mom, Like Me, and Freedom, and maybe even to an extent Secrets of a Mother-Daughter, can also be coming-of-age films. Um, and maybe it's a coming-of-age story for both the mother and the daughter, but I don't think the parent always has to be the mother, right? Because I think Amber Waves is also both a sort of coming-of-age story, both for Mary Winningham's character and Dennis Weaver's character, as well as a look at unconventional families. Um, so that film originally aired on ABC on March 8, 1980. It's about a rancher, played by Dennis Weaver, who's raising a teenage daughter, played by Mary Winningham, and a son. He's also somewhat estranged from an older son, and um, it's created a hole in Weaver's life. So when this Lothario-type model, played by Kurt Russell, finds himself stranded in Weaver's little town, he takes him under his wing, and they develop this really lovely father-son relationship, one that I think both have been longing for. Then Weaver finds out he's dying, and he tries to kind of make amends and find closure with his troubled relations, and also tries to find a way to help take care of his family for when he's not there anymore. Um, Amber Waves, you know, it refers to the beautiful grain fields Weaver uh, harvests, but it's obviously touching on the song America the Beautiful. And to be certain, um, that telefilm is basking in this blue-collar Americana that was at the time capturing the collective consciousness of the country. Um, you may or may not remember that part of Reagan's popularity was how he liked to spotlight the ordinary man doing extraordinary things, and he really embraced blue-collar workers. But the underlying theme is how Weaver's family, before Russell shows up, had to switch up some of the dynamics, and Winningham um, becomes more than a daughter. As she has to tend house and look after her brother, she essentially becomes the mother because there's no mother there. After Russell and Weaver bond, though, the roles become more relaxed, and Winningham is able to live as a teenager and finds her first love in Russell. Um, it's an absolutely beautifully drawn portrayal of the changing face of family and how we adapt to the fluidity of roles we are given in that structure. And you know, Amber Waves was really well received. Uh, critics called it television at its best, thoughtful, richly textured, exceptional, um, all true. The critics were just as kind to Winningham, said she was a natural, again, all true. Um, Sargent was nominated for an Emmy for Best Director, and as I mentioned earlier, Winningham won the Emmy. Um, the film overall did well enough to get the filmmakers back together for freedom. Um, also, about two months after Amber Waves aired, uh, Off the Minnesota Strip debuted on May 5th, 1980, uh, almost a year to the day that Freedom would premiere, right, the next year. So this is really a great period for Winningham. Um, but I wanted to go back to some of these themes in Amber, uh, Amber Waves. Excuse me. The representation of the non-traditional family was, you know, pretty prevalent in this era. Um, I had mentioned earlier that shows like The Brady Bunch and The Partridge Family were sort of coded as ways to have blended or single apparent families represented on television. But other shows did really fascinating things to introduce the power of family and how if these characters don't have one, it explored how they might go about building one, right? So I'm going to talk about a show called Lucan. Um, and if you're familiar with it, I'm sure you're thinking, what? But let me just uh, explain where I'm going here. So, Lou Cam was a short-lived series that lasted from 1977 to 1978. Um, if you aren't familiar with the premise, it's a little wacky um, in all the right ways. Um, it's about a young boy who's been abandoned in the forest. He becomes uh, feral and is sort of adopted by a pack of wolves who raise him until he's discovered by some humans. He's then kind of turned over to this university and he becomes like a test subject for this kindly doctor played by John Randolph. Um, Lou Cam is Kevin Brophy. Um, anyway, Randolph becomes a kind of father figure to Brophy, um, who he names Lucan, as in, you can, Lucan. Um, so of course, Lucan has developed some kind of super wolf powers, as you do, um, 
but the series, uh, at least the first several episodes before they tried to reimagine it and save it from cancellation, was kind of actually an exploration on the importance of family. Uh, Luke Han becomes obsessed with finding his parents, which puts him on this sort of uh, quote-unquote uh, incredible Hulk journey, because now that he's left the university, he's on the run and they want him back. Um, Anyway, along the way, he's constantly building these little families at every stop he takes in every episode. And yet he's unable to recognize that's what he's doing. Um, and that's why he kind of stays on the road. And I know, I know, Lucan seems like a far cry from freedom. But in a way, they are very similar because both suggest that we are sort of naturally building families as a means for survival. They give us stability. They give us a feeling of belonging. You know, yet in the end, it's the core of the actual family that keeps us going. So as Lucan is obsessed with finding his parents, Libby is ultimately led back home to be with her mother, right? So let's go back to these structures, right? There were shows like Alice, right, which realistically depicted a working class single mom raising one son. But it also showed how the diner she worked at became an extension of family. And that included the myriad of patrons, right, who were regulars at the diner. In fact, when the character Vera, um, who I mentioned earlier, played by Beth Allen, gets married, many of the patrons of the diner are guests at the ceremony. Um, I think more obtuse examples could be Charlie's Angels or even Emergency because we see so little of what happens outside of the main character's lives if it doesn't involve their work. And they are sort of families, right? So like for instance in Emergency, we often watch the characters prepare meals together and share them. It's a very family-like thing. And I think that's what makes freedom really special, is that it depicts both the more normalized, if fragmented, family structure as having just as many pros and cons as the makeshift carnival family structure, which was also a nurturing way for uh, Libby to find a form of stability, right? And I also wanted to point out here that Libby had just spoken to Sherry, played by Tara King, the pregnant uh, woman in the movie. She told her that carnival life meant living in very unconventional ways, referring to why she's so laid back about being pregnant with Ron's kid, but knowing he's having sex with different women at every stop. Yet, just a few minutes later, right, we see these two carnies getting married in what looks like a fairly traditional wedding. I mean, a raucous one, but certainly a pretty familiar looking ceremony. Um, and I love this because there's no judgment as to what is right or wrong, right? It's about the type of relationship that will bring you the most joy. It, um, it's sort of telegraphing the end of the film too, right? When Horton decides to stay on the circus, but understands that Libby must return home and goes home to a wedding. Um, it's so lovely uh, the way Turner intersperses all of this stuff about family. Um, and I mean, they use the word family a few times in the film, uh, but they also back it up with these beautiful scenes of just everyone enjoying being around each other. Uh, there's a closeness and there's a warmth here in the carnival circuit. And you know, for wrapping, this was par for the course, you know. I'm going to read you a pretty heady quote, but she wrote, quote, TV movies, the most public, political, and socially important of the dramatic forms, have tended to ignore the whole explosive arena of American politics in favor of a displacement, a fantasy really, of all significant action to the private realm. They domesticate matters that are far more complex and messy than that, to the extent that they become the primary forms through which history and politics are perceived and understood by most Americans. Lofty, lofty, lofty. But I think in terms of how we can better understand TV, and specifically the TV movie in the later 70s and into the 80s, is to understand that producers, networks, and filmmakers were looking for ways to represent the domestic as a way to not only reach mass audiences, but to also keep um, this sort of shared experience of um, understanding what we were all going through at the time, right? So if picking up and literally joining a carnival seems something 
most viewers would not do. I think there are relatable threads interspersed throughout this portion of the story, which is essentially boiled down to building families in an era when families were seen to be falling apart. And of course, you know, um, as I mentioned, this was Winningham and part of her sort of meteoric rise. Um, she was an extremely ambitious actress and she was actually hoping to direct a film herself after Freedom Rap production. It was to be called Coming Attractions and it was gonna be based on her acting teacher. Uh, but for whatever reason, that never came to be. Um, but her small screen work as an actress in this area is magnificent, you know. After Freedom, she appeared in several TV movies, including A Few Days at Weasel Creek and a movie called Missing Children, A Mother's Story, which is a pretty upsetting look at an illiterate woman who doesn't realize she's given up her children for adoption. And I think that's an interesting film because all of the major roles are played by women, right? Winningham is the mother. The villain is played by Polly Holiday, who we best probably know as Flo from Alice. And I know Alice keeps coming up again and again, but they were on it when they cast those fabulous actresses for that show. Um, and the lawyer in this movie, uh, who helps Winningham's character is played by Kate Capshaw in one of her first roles. So, um, and again, we've got this female screenwriter named Nancy Sackett um, sharing credit with Jim Lawrence. And you know, it's a really, really good film. Anyway, later Winningham would play Helen Keller in Helen Keller, The Miracle Continues, which of course was the sequel to The Miracle Worker. And she's a standout in um, the underrated ensemble piece, Single Bar, Single Women, which I can't recommend enough. That's a great film. Um, of her early work uh, and playing such rebellious young women, Winningham said, quote, it baffles me. I can't think of a role I've done where the girl has had a stable family background. There's a divorce or somebody's dying. It's so different from my own family situation. Winningham added uh, that even though she came from a fairly stable home life, uh, growing up around lots of families who were going through divorces helped her hone into the character of Libby. She said, quote, I think it's a mistake in acting to feel you can only use personal experience. I know when something happens to me, I can't be objective enough about it to portray the emotions in an acting situation. In fact, I think my view of broken family uh, was heightened when I was younger because I was one of the few whose family were still together. For instance, my awareness was heightened because I was personally involved. So it goes back to Meta Rosenberg discussing why she hired Winningham for Off the Minnesota Strip. You know, Winningham um, has this level of empathy, right? And she always finds a way to understand characters that are nothing like herself. So um, I haven't talked too much about Janice Ian yet, and I can't imagine a better choice uh, for um, a composer for freedom than Janice Ian. She herself was a teenage folk hero, having hit it big at age 15. Um, with her song Society's Child. Uh, she talked about having struggles within the folk community for enjoying um, success at such a young age. And of course in 1973 she re released Stars, which features uh, what was probably my favorite Ian song, 17. Um, that album was nominated for five Grammys. Um, anyway, uh, she's singing a song, Winningham is singing the song, I should say, Sugar Mountain, which Ian wrote in this montage. Um, Ian recorded this herself, uh, as well as another song she wrote for Freedom titled Dear Billy, and they both ended up on Ian's um, 1991 album, Restless Eyes. And of course, here we've got uh, Jay Pat O'Malley, and you'll see briefly in the background Buddy Douglas. Uh, Buddy was in all kinds of movies, including The Graduate, Sex Kittens Go to College, Ernest Saves Christmas, I mean, a wide variety of films. His last on-screen appearance was in a TV series by David Lynch titled On the Air from 1992 where he had a reoccurring role, again playing a character named Buddy. Um, 
O'Malley is one of the great faces of film and TV. Um, he was an Irish-born character actor who began his career in British vaudeville, but he moved to the U.S. before World War II and began a pretty, pretty, pretty fabulous and prolific career that lasted until his passing in 1985 at the age of 80. So he's actually playing younger here. I guess he'd be about 75, playing a 92-year-old. Um, and O'Malley kind of did it all, right? He appeared on Broadway. He was in productions of Ten Little Indians, Dial In for Murder. He supplied voices for several animated projects, including Tweedledee, oh, I'm sorry, Tweedledum and Tweedledee, Alice in Wonderland, and 101 Dalmatians. O'Malley was also a veteran of live television and seen regularly on programs such as Robert Montgomery Presents, Lux Video Theater, and Craft Theater. He also appeared on shows like Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Thriller, The Twilight Zone. And he was in just about every sitcom that aired in the 1980s um, and 70s and 60s. He was on The Dick Van Dyke Show, Hogan's Heroes, Green Acres, The Brady Bunch, you name it, he was on it. And of course, he was a regular in theatricals as well. He appeared in The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, The Courage of Black Beauty, Mary Poppins, and Hello, Dolly, among many, many others. But I think possibly one of the coolest things he did was starring in a production of a comedic play titled Seagulls Over Sorrento in 1952. His castmates include Leslie Nielsen, Rod Steiger, and John Randolph, who I just mentioned was in Lucan. Um, O'Malley was singled out, though, uh, from that play in a lot of reviews who were giving him great notice as a terrific comedic actor. And you know what? This is one of my favorite segments in the movie. Um, this is where Papa Jay has a sit-down with Libby and discusses how she can find a mark, right? While also giving her some fatherly advice on how not to become a mark herself. I think it's such a really sweet scene, and O'Malley makes the most of the moment. Um, he says to her, quote, people are waiting to get smacked by a two-by-four. And I think the point of the story is to let Libby know that abuse will always lead to getting someone to do what you want them to do or need them to do. And Libby needs to avoid abuse, right? It's an encouragement, right? And to listen to her own heart and to stay independent. And of course, his name is Papa Jay, and he's married to Mama Jay, played by Ina Gould, who we saw in the ticket booth. You know, so again, this family structure is really being honed in here. But anyway, one of uh, Winningham's biggest roles outside of Amber Waves, Off the Minnesota Strip, and Freedom, from this time period, I know she made so many movies, uh, she played someone named Chris in The Woman's Room, which aired on the 14th of September in 1980 on ABC, and would turn out to be one of the highest rated TV movies of the 1980-81 season. It came in at number seven um, with the 28.2 slash 45. So ratings are always difficult to decipher in terms of getting exact viewer numbers, but the rating share basically is saying, okay, so I kind of excise the 28.2 and look at the 45, because that simply means that 45% of homes with televisions that were watching TV on the night the woman's room aired were watching that film. That's almost half the country, right? So that's a really big movie. Um, the Woman's Room was based on a novel by Marilyn French and it chronicles a woman who in the 1940s finds herself as this really frustrated, depressed housewife she eventually finds liberation um, in the feminist movement in the 1970s. And the film starred Lee Remick and Colleen Dewhurst. Uh, Winningham plays Dewhurst's daughter. Uh, newspaper articles mentioned uh, that she was the new, new face in the film, um, full of famous faces, and that she was often seen on set kind of standing back and observing much of the shoot. So The Woman's Room was met with some really divisive reviews, uh, I think because of the way it handled its general portrayal of men. Um, According to a review that appeared in the Christian Science Monitor, um, there was a threatened boycott against the film and ABC, but of course the network decided to air it and they ended up getting a huge audience, so it worked out. But some of the review headlines read things like, men should beware of the woman's room. And I think that it aired and that it did get amazing ratings uh, stands as a testament to the important and popular role women's stories uh, played for TV. 
And, you know, years after that film aired, uh, Elaine Rapping talked about how she would show the film to her students, and they always applauded at the end, right? So, I mean, it's a movie that's carried weight over the years. So let's look at some of the highest-rated films of the 1980-81 season, as well as seeing how Freedom did on its premiere. So just to remind you, it originally aired on May 18, 1981 on ABC. It ran against on CBS Match, House Calls, and a special, The Grammy Hall of Fame. And on NBC, it ran against the TV movie titled Bitter Harvest, which starred Ron Howard. Um, it's about a young farmer trying to save his farm and land when he finds out that his cattle have been exposed to contamination. Um, reviews called it the kind of social drama that only television seems to do these days. Um, Freedom came in at number 21 for the week with a 15.4 slash 24, so like a quarter of the country watched it. Bitter Harvest came in at number 10. MASH was number 3. Um, a TV movie called The Violation of Sarah McDavid also landed in the top 10 at number 5. Um, Freedom ended up uh, for the year at number 140 out of the 287 made-for-TV movies to air that season. The top 20? Pretty interesting, right? The miniseries Shogun was the highest rated program and it took up the first five slots, uh, you know, for that list. After that was Fallen Angel, which is about child pornography and sort of uh, recalls what I mentioned earlier about that um, TV movie that never got produced about the small town trying to rid itself of porn. Um, the Woman's Room, uh, which featured Winningham, came in at number seven. Um, other miniseries that filled up the top ten included Masada, Murder in Texas, and an adaptation of John Steinbeck's East of Eden. Um, another Joseph Sargent TV movie titled Playing for Time ranked at number 13. The film is a true story about a female concentration camp prisoner who survived her ordeal by playing music for her captors. Uh, that TV movie had an incredible, incredible cast of actresses, including Vanessa Redgrave, Maude Adams, Jane Alexander, and Kristen Baranski. Um, and rounding out the top 20, at uh, number 20, is The Jane Mansfield Story, which is a pretty infamous TV movie starring Lonnie Anderson and Arnold Schwarzenegger. So you can see that female-centric telefilms were quite popular in this era, uh, bringing in solid ratings. Um, I mean, even Murder in Texas tells the true crime story about a murderous doctor through the eyes of his second wife. Um, and I think Jennifer Warren uh, took the notion of TV movies and um, the kind of roles that they provided actresses to heart. Uh, she has actually said that she thought the role of Rachel was really refreshing. Um, in an interview she did with uh, Chuck Benz to promote the film, she lamented, quote, I've been typecast as the strong, independent, modern woman who isn't vulnerable to anything. And it's been very hard getting out of those kinds of parts. Um, and so, playing the fictionalized Turner, Warren said, uh, quote, finally, here's a well-rounded woman who's independent and yet very vulnerable. She goes through a lot of anger and tears. It's really kind of a love-hate relationship that I guess a lot of mothers and daughters have. One of the reasons why I'm so excited about this project is that Tony Bill plays my lover, and he's the supporting player. For once, I'm not supporting the man, right? Which I think is so poignant and accurate. Um, so maybe this is a good place to give some context to women working behind the scenes, right? So as I just mentioned, um, it was in this era more of an anomaly, but there were a number of notable women working um, behind the camera. Uh, obviously, I'm including the women I mentioned who had their own production companies, but I wanted to talk a little bit about female uh, screenwriters because it might be worth noting, for example, that with the exception of Born Innocent, um, several of the women in prison made for TV movies in the 1970s were written by women. And I'm putting quotes around women in prison because, you know, a lot of times they were about reformatories more so than actual prisons. But there were some legit, right? Um, 
women in prison movies that I think were pretty uh, like their theatrical B-movie counterparts that were playing in the theater. So um, I'm going to talk here a little bit here about Women in Chains, which was written by Rita Lakin and originally aired in 1972. It was one of the highest rated TV movies of that year and was actually one of the highest rated TV movies of all time, even by the late 80s when hundreds of telefilms had, you know, come out since then. Um, Lakin was a bit of a star in this era and wrote a book about her experiences of being a female screenwriter in a male-dominated industry. Her book was titled The Only Woman in the Room, Episodes of My Life and Career as a Television Writer, and it is excellent if you want some insight into what the world of uh, TV was like for women in this era. Um, Nightmare in Badham County, which is the most like an actual woman in prison movie, was written by Joe Himes, who worked a few times with Eastwood, writing Breezy and also developing the story for Play Misty for me. And then there was a teen delinquent movie titled Cage Without a Key, which was written by Joanna Lee. And there were other female writers too. So there was an actress named Ellen Weston um, who would go on to write one of my favorite late 80s TV movies. It's called Fear Stalk. It stars Jill Clayburg as this really independent woman who won't let a stalker destroy her sense of autonomy. It's great cat and mouse. Um, it's an amazing film. I highly recommend it despite that super generic title. Um, and Susan Silver wrote a really popular early 70s TV movie titled The Girl Came Gift Wrapped. Um, she also wrote several episodes of The Mary Tyler Moore Show. So at this stage, uh, you just didn't see too many female directors, and that's why it was great to see Beaumont was behind The Secrets of a Mother Daughter. But in terms of writers, we also got uh, Rose Lehman Goldenberg, who wrote several TV movies, including, of course, The Burning Bed, which I mentioned at the beginning of this track. Um, she tackled all kinds of female-centric issues, including the challenging world of maintaining the idealized beauty standards um, in Born Innocent, I'm sorry, Born Beautiful from 1982. Um, as well as exploring the harrowing worlds of homeless women in The Stone Pillow, which starred Lucille Ball, and that came out later in the 80s. And she also put her own spin on mother-daughter relations in 1980 um, in a movie she wrote titled um, Mother and Daughter, The Loving War. It starred Tuesday Weld as a teenage girl who finds herself pregnant, and with the support of her devoted mother, played by Frances Sternhagen, um, she marries the father of the child, but he soon abandons her, and she finds that she's raising a little girl all by herself. Uh, while some of their life together is harmonious, uh, Weld's character finds that she and her daughter don't have the same bonds um, that she had with her mother. Um, the older version of the, that daughter is played by Kathleen Beller. And it's kind of this really interesting, takes place over a couple decades. Um, the Loving War originally aired on ABC on January 25th, 1980, and it features some really good performances. And um, I love that it's more of a generational look at the different types of relationships mothers can have with their children. But I think what stands out to me the most about the film is that, like Freedom, the filmmakers went to a noted folk singer to do the score. Um, Harry Chapin wrote several original compositions for the film, many of which have never been commercially released. And I'm glad they got him because Chapin ended up being killed in a car accident about a year later. Strangely enough, in this scene with Bill and Warren, Bill's character actually says, either the Pope has died or Libby is home. And that line at the time of Freedom's original airing would have probably been a little disturbing for viewers, as Pope John Paul II had been shot just five days earlier at St. Peter's Square. Um, Cecil Smith noted that in his review of the film for the Los Angeles Times. Reviews overall were very kind of Freedom. Smith loved it. He called it haunting and said Turner's script was biting. He said that choosing between Freedom and Bitter Harvest was an embarrassment of riches because both movies were first-rate. 
Janet Maslin of the New York Times also gave Freedom high marks and said, quote, Miss Winningham is something special. She makes Libby sweet and surprising even when the character isn't saying much. Since the screenplay confines Libby to the sulky, uncommunicative language of girls her age, Maslin also loved Winningham's covers of the Ian tunes. Nicholas Romay of the Times from Patterson, New Jersey said Freedom was unusually candid. Owen McNally of the Hartford Courant paper loved the two leading ladies, although he felt the film was overly sentimental. And Kenneth R. Clark of UPI said he was pleased to see a social commentary film where nothing completely horrible happens to someone. And you know, Winningham also commented on how Freedom was taking an unusual approach to social commentary. She said, quote, there's been a trend of victim stories lately, people with cancer or severed limbs. This story really zeroed in on the mother-daughter relationship, period. It's a really meaty part, plus the singing, working with Janice Ian, that was kind of fun. Some of the reviews, of course, gave notice to Peter Horton's quietly calm performance. This was, um, as I may have mentioned earlier, a pretty early role for Horton, although he'd done some stage work. Um, the earliest production I could see him attached to was a Los Angeles-based uh, production of Butterflies Are Free in 1977, where he also received some really warm notices. Um, he had the leading role in that. In terms of his on-screen work, um, his biggest roles at the time were probably playing John Ewing III in two episodes of Dallas in 1979 and appearing with Jessica Walter and Eleanor Parker in the Giallo-inspired She's Dressed to Kill, also 1979. Um, Horton also has a small part in the 1980 thriller Fade to Black, which was made by Vernon Zimmerman, who of course had a production company um, with Tony Bill in the early 70s. And um, of course, uh, Horton appeared in Miracle on Ice the same year he did Freedom. And he would go on to become really, really popular as the character of Gary Shepard in, um, you know, that existentialist drama, 30-something, which you probably have heard of if you haven't seen it even. Um, but aside from Freedom, I think one of my favorite TV movie roles that he did was in the USA original telefilm Death Benefit, which is based on a true story about a young woman killed for her insurance money. Um, Horton plays the lawyer who pursues the killers. Uh, it's a really touching film, and I think it makes good use of what feels like um, an inherent sensitivity in the actor, right? It, which really comes through here in Freedom as well. He's just terrific in this movie, and as I said, he makes for a great romantic lead here. Um, I mean, he is a flawed character, but that's what makes him so compelling, I think. You know, this is really well-drawn-out stuff. So the film itself was promoted with the tagline, Every Kid's Dream is Finding Freedom. And Winningham noted in an interview that the network executives were actually sensitive to this idea that the movie would encourage teenagers all over the country to seek emancipation from their parents. Uh, she said, quote, the networks were concerned um, that everyone is going to run out and get emancipated. Um, our thought on the subject is that emancipation isn't right for everybody. Libby was a chronic runaway and drove her mother gradually insane because of the fear and the anguish of not knowing where her daughter was. That can be tremendously overwhelming. The idea of emancipating her with some legality was so that the mother would know where she was. So I think emancipation really only applies to kids that aren't really cutting it at home. And if the mother and father and a lawyer and the kid can see that, clearly then I think that would be the extreme case where I think emancipation would be a good thing." End quote. So the Geneva Declaration of Rights of the Child established emancipation policies in 1924 and there have been child labor laws um, since the 1830s so this concept of emancipated minors and the rights of the underage is not a new concept. However, it wasn't until 1972 when a lot of things that had been restricted for minors changed from 
21 years of age to 18, which is right at the time when the youth counterculture movement was kind of drawing to a close, right? And kids seemed to be growing up faster and becoming more autonomous. Of course, it varies state by state as to what age a child can actually petition for emancipation. But in California, where this movie takes place, uh, the legal age is 14, much younger than it is in a place like Florida or Illinois where you needed to be at least 16. Um, in Wyoming, you need to be 17, which is so close. Um, but having started uh, on her career so young, Winningham had gained a lot of perspective as to where she was as a young adult actress just a few years later. In 1987, she talked candidly about how most of her work had been relegated to TV projects, and she said, quote, Even though I've been working for 10 years, I have retained a degree of anonymity. Most of the young actors I know have had vehicles early in their careers that catapulted them to stardom. I haven't had that. Maybe it's because my work is mostly in television. Two years ago, I swore I'd never make another TV movie. I don't really care anymore. TV affords me the opportunity to act. So here we're returning to this idea of the carnival family structure, right? The characters of Papa and Mama Jay are very important to this idea of family building. And their nicknames even you know, indicate this importance of the carnival crew um, and how they saw themselves as their children. Again, freedom is always tying us back to these themes of family and how families can look different but have the same impact. And this is one of the hardest scenes for me to watch. It's heart-wrenching watching Buddy, right, Douglas, try to help up his friend. And I think Winningham does a great job here conveying the sort of enormity of what is probably happening and also the tragedy of it. And, of course, we're going to see Ina Gold here as Mama J one last time. Um, now, she was only in a couple scenes in this film, but, of course, this is the most poignant uh, part. She doesn't have a lengthy filmography, the actress, but it's a really fun one, actually. She appeared in films later in life in smaller roles, including making appearances in films like If You Don't Stop, You'll Go Blind in 1975. She's in Rabbit Test, which starred Billy Crystal and was directed by Joan Rivers. That was released in 78. And she even has a really fun little role as a landlady in The Silent Scream in 1979, which I remember her role in that. Her last on-screen appearance was in 1985's Real Genius. But Gould did some stage work. Um, the earliest play I could find was produced in Los Angeles in 1958 and was titled The World of Shalom Alakim. That play was adapted into a film the following year, but Gould did not appear in that. Um, she did a lot of theater in Los Angeles in the 70s. She was in some Harold Pinter productions, as well as appearing in a play called A Midnight Moon at a Greasy Spoon. Um, she played the bag lady. She always played characters like that. So you can see maybe she was typecast a bit. And I think the role of Mama J was probably a nice departure for her. And I also wanted to mention that I love how the Ferris wheel is used here um, for both the wedding ceremony and to commemorate the life of Papa Jay, right? It's a symbol of the wheel of life. Um, and that rituals are important and have meaning for this group of people and for everybody in general. We all have rituals. And I think it's also kind of great that in between the wedding ceremony and the funeral of sorts that we're having here, we had the birth of Sherry's baby. This is all really lovely symbolism, and it just shows how much Libby has learned since she started working with the Carnies. And in case it didn't hit you over the head, or I haven't hit you over the head, here we see how important Papa Jay was as a father figure. One of the Carnies in the scene actually says, Dad is dead, right? Or something to that effect. Um, but you know, then life goes on, as we are just about to see. Um, so while I don't necessarily see freedom as an ensemble piece because it's mostly centered on Libby and Rachel's relationship, right, and Libby's coming-of-age story, every character conveys something important. I don't want to say that they're all metaphors, but if Horton is symbolic of first love, uh, Papa is the father figure, and Mama Jay and he are the parents that stay together, and Sherry is about giving life, 
then we see that each character helps Libby grow in these rather profound ways, right? And clearly Turner crafted every one of them with great care. And we get to see Horton being a badass too, which, you know, is the best. I really love it. So when newspapers first started reporting on the making of Freedom, much of the news was about Janice Ian's involvement. Um, originally, she signed on to write 11 songs, but by the time the production wrapped, uh, about six songs ended up in the film. Ian said just prior to working on Freedom that she loved writing music more than performing. Um, and she said, quote, I'd rather write than anything. I wish I had the time to write every day. So by the time she got to Freedom, she'd actually written a song called Fly Too High, which was used in uh, the Jodie Foster film Foxes, another film right about kind of this lost female youth. And uh, she also wrote Here Comes the Night for the adaptation of Sylvia Plath's amazing novel, The Bell Jar. Are we seeing a theme here in Troubled Young Women? Um, and she was excited to begin work on Freedom. She said, quote, right now I'm working on something for an ABC movie called Freedom. I'm doing 11 songs for the girl in the movie who is trying to define her place. She sings them all, which is great for me because I'm just writing. And Winningham, you know, was originally hesitant actually about recording the music, saying she didn't want the world of her singing and her acting career to cross. She said, quote, I was frightened of Freedom at first since I'd really like to keep those two things, singing and acting, separate only because I guess I feel very private about my music. One of the reasons I didn't want to do the album was because it would have been my first album and so therefore I would have been introduced as a singer singing another person's songs. But Winningham, you know, was already a really big fan of folk music. Um, in an interview she said she'd been listening to a lot of folk music ever since she was a kid and she didn't listen to a lot of other types of stuff. She said that she always had um, the records of the Kingston Trio and the Weavers around, you know more so than people like Aretha Franklin or, or any of that kind of uh, other types of music. And as I mentioned at the beginning, Winningham's versions have never been commercially released, but the actress, you know, has since released a couple of albums, including one titled What Might Be, which came out in 92, as well as a 1997 release she called The Lonesomers, and Refuge in uh, Rock Sublime came out in 2007. And of course, she can be heard on the original soundtrack for the 1990 film Georgia, a movie for which she was nominated for an Oscar. So, Georgia was an independent film which was conceived by Winningham's co-star Jennifer Jason Lee and brought to life through her mother Barbara Turner, who wrote the screenplay, uh, which she began writing in 1990, so it actually took a few years for the film to get produced. And again, as with Freedom, the film was about family relationships, of course this time it's two sisters, one who's this popular folk and country singer, and the other a struggling kind of wannabe singer who tends to be more emotion than talent. The two sisters often find themselves at odds, particularly because Winningham's Georgia is kind of this perfect person, and Lee Sadie is anything but. And there's some truly powerhouse moments um, that kind of capture this raw energy of the musical performances. And so to do that, they shot those scenes live. There was no overdubbing for the music. Um, and some of Sadie's uh, traits were inspired by Carrie. So Sadie was the Jennifer Jason Lee character, if I didn't mention that. Um, just like Libby, right, was inspired by Carrie too. Winningham had just recorded her first album and actually turned down the role of Georgia exactly because, as I mentioned before, she said that um, her music and her film career were kind of two separate entities. However, after a tour, she decided to make the film, um, and of course she would go on to win the Independent Spirit Award and then get nominated for an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress. Uh, one of the songs in the film, If I Waited, was written by Winningham. So, Carrie was clearly a free spirit and much loved by her family, um, that she inspired such uh, fascinating characters in two amazing films is a testament to the person I think that she was. Um, she sadly died at the age of 58 in uh, 2016. 
Um, I wish she could have been here to see this great release, and I'm so pleased her mother found so much inspiration in her because Freedom and Georgia are really wonderful films. And Winningham said after she made Freedom that one of the greatest satisfactions she had about the film was knowing that Carrie liked it. Um, and that just warms my heart. Uh, she just seemed like a really amazing woman. So Georgia is sometimes considered an unofficial sequel to Freedom, um, although they aren't connected in any real way aside from the casting, of course, of Winningham in a movie written by Turner. But again, this is about two people at loggerheads, right? Kind of unable to speak in a kind of language the other one understands. And I think maybe music serves as a bridge for them in both films. Um, and while prepping my nose for freedom, I was struck with the idea that in Georgia, uh, Carrie's own sibling would be portraying her, you know, like a, like a, not a complete portrait of her, but the essence of her. And I wondered if that ever really happened in a film before. But then I remembered another movie about music, um, The Mambo Kings, right? Uh, Desi Arnaz Jr. actually plays his own father in that movie. And I had a hard time really recalling if that was a more common practice, but I think it does sort of build on this meta element that Freedom has um, and was establishing with Turner using Carrie's life to create this fictional work. And I know we're getting to the end here, and I mentioned Philip Mandoker, and I did not mention his producing partner, Leonard Hill, so I wanted to get to them really quick because they're both really interesting. So Phil Mandoker enjoyed a diverse career behind the camera before he died tragically in 1984 at the age of 45. Um, he worked on Broadway, he worked on soaps, he was an executive producer on the Dukes of Hazzard. Um, he formed Mandoker Hill with Leonard Hill in 1980. Uh, so he also tackled the issues of cults stealing our children in Blinded by the Light, which starred Christy McNichol as a young woman trying to understand why her brother, played by her real life brother, Jimmy McNichol, is willing to live with this cult. And that's a really interesting movie to uh, think of, especially in terms of freedom, because a large portion is dedicated to the deprogramming of Jimmy's brainwashed character, but it is actually only when he, he is reunited with his sister at the end that he's able to break free of the cult. And again, it comes down to the importance of family. So a year after his death, a foundation was set up. It was called the Philip Mandelkar Chair in production, and that was set up at AFI. Leonard Hill started his career at a young age. Um, when he graduated from college, he landed a job writing scripts for Adam-12. I think he was like 22 years old or something. He got the job through Stephen J. Cannell, who was both a mentor and a friend to Hill. That led to work at Universal, Paramount, and Mary Tyler Moore Productions. Um, he worked in business roles there before he joined NBC as an executive in the dramatic series department. And from 1977 until 1980, he served as vice president of movies for ABC. While there, he, he was involved with the Jericho Mile, Elvis, of course, with Kurt Russell, and Amber Ways with Kurt Russell, Friendly Fire, which is a really incredible film with Carol Burnett, and of course, Off the Minnesota Strip. So the two together, Mandelker and Hill, proved to be a pretty dynamic duo. Um, and as I said, they produced Amber Waves, which feels really lofty when you look at some of the other titles they got into, which include High School USA, which is sort of a teen sex comedy made for TV without the sex. It's great. I love it. Everybody needs to see it. They also did a movie called The Cartier Affair with David Hasselhoff and Joan Collins. Collins turns in a fantastic comedic performance. It's about a jewel heist and she's great in it. Um, and I highly recommend that one too. It's, it's, it's really fun. It's broad, but it's fun. Um, and then they did some romantic comedies like Dreamhouse and Having It All. And so like I said, they were really diverse in their output. Um, and Mandelker actually produced The Woman's Room, um, The Girls of the White Orchid, uh, which starred Turner's daughter, Jennifer Jason Lee as well. And so now we're seeing here how much Libby has learned running the Carney circuit. She's developed a really strong work ethic, right? 
I'm not quite sure Turner was interspersing a class element into her script. She was to a degree, right? Because Libby does talk about how much she hated being rich. But I don't know that it was meant to be a huge part of this kind of subtext. But um, because of this kind of like wanting to see how the other half lives, she's really open to kind of going to this more kind of blue collar world and she embraces it, you know? all the while pursuing her dream of having a musical career. Only now she's learned to work for it, right? She's not expecting anything to be handed to her. And so earlier I mentioned the cinematographer Donald M. Morgan, but I haven't really talked too much about him. So I think he brings a real Christmas to the film. And it's interesting that we're looking here at kind of the lighting on Mayor Winningham, because I'm going to talk a little bit about his obsession with lighting in a second. So Morgan's father actually moved to Los Angeles before Morgan was born because he had dreams of becoming a singer, which I love since this is a movie, right, about someone who wants to be a singer. He ended up working at, in studio labs as a way to make ends meet. Um, he would become an animated cameraman and worked on uh, projects like Bambi, Snow White, and Pinocchio. And so Morgan's father really tried to get his son interested in working with a camera. But Morgan said it seemed kind of tedious, he didn't have an interest in it. But then he discovered the art of lighting and he became kind of obsessed with it. And he began to try to mimic certain works of art in terms of how he could manipulate the light to capture them. So anyway, things kind of fell into place for him and his first job would end up being in 1972 as a second unit camera operator on Skyjacked. Morgan would go on to work heavily in the telefilm and of course he worked with several projects with Sargent. Um, including Amber Waves, which was their first project together. They also did Miss Evers Boys, which I mentioned earlier from 1997, A Lesson Before Dying in 1998, Added the Ashes in 2003. They did the Civil Remake in 2007, and their last project together was in 2008 for a film called Something in My Ear. Morgan is a two-time Emmy winner, although he never won an Emmy for a project he did with Sargent, which surprises me because this is so beautifully filmed. But I also wanted to talk very briefly about Sargent and this idea of the journeyman, right? So made-for-TV filmmakers are all too often referred to as journeymen. Um, you know, they're considered people who are adept at handling different genres officially, but aren't necessarily known for their artistry. And I always get a little kind of ticked off uh, when I come up to this topic because I always feel like we, and I mean the universal we, not maybe you listening or myself, but we are constantly trying to put TV movies somewhere below their theatrical counterparts. And yeah, they work in a totally different game. Things need to be made to have commercial breaks. They can't have heavy sexual or violent content. And I might even agree that there are films that are meant to find some kind of middle ground with their audiences. But to be able to do all that and to continually produce wonderful, memorable, and yes, artistic content just shows the enormous amount of talent behind and in front of the camera. And of course, as uh, Warren said in that interview I quoted from, the rules for women were refreshing. There was an opportunity here for them and in ways that simply didn't exist in the theatrical, you know, right? So, of course, this goes for screenwriting as well. And I think sometimes screenwriters fall into a blind spot when we think of these types of films, possibly because of the strict structure. But it's so wonderful to see the venue here for women um, because it's an avenue to explore female-centric stories and have them told in a fortrightness you might not see otherwise. One of the things I was struck by when putting together these notes were the ways that some male critics didn't always see that these types of films had things to offer. Bill Hayden of the Gannett News Service said freedom suffered from a lack of depth, which I don't understand. But this movie wasn't made for him, right? So, by the way, you're going to see some women's names in the credits at the end as well, including Turner, who was an associate producer as well as the screenwriter. First assistant director was a woman named Catherine McCabe. And some of the editing department consisted of women as well. 
So I just feel that the work of these people should always be met with some respect. And sometimes that's just not how it is. Um, but some of that simply comes from a lack of access, right? So like I said at the beginning of this track, I did not know the name of this film for years because I'd missed the beginning of it and I had to kind of chase it down if I were to revisit it. It just wasn't that available. And now I see these things changing as these films find more and more releases on home video. And I hope every single movie gets some kind of release. But as it is, I think it's great to see that Freedom, which is kind of a deep dive, has this opportunity to find a second audience. And of course, now we're here at the reconciliation scene. So I wanted to throw out a couple more concepts. Um, Rapping discussed in her work on the importance of the made-for-TV movie and what it might be saying to the audience. Rapping saw the TV movie as low art, but art nonetheless. And because of that, it created something to be consumed by the masses. And she felt the TV movie was a great place to interject social issues in ways that have these larger issues right sort of shaved down to their very essence. She felt the telefilm was important exactly because of how it had the potential to introduce touchy and divisive issues in this sort of um, way that turned them into water cooler talk. And so one of my favorite things that she ever said was, quote, the social issue theatrical film is virtually extinct thanks to the economics of the movie industry. But if you watch made for TV movies, the small screen replacement for the family melodrama and social issue film, and read closely between the lines after all the sponsors are still watching, you will get a scary picture of how we really feel about our children, how as a society we are providing for them and how we are dealing with those feelings and conditions. It is on Movie of the Week that such issues as teenage drinking, drugs, AIDS, pregnancy, prostitution, suicide, delinquency, and plain old-fashioned alienation are addressed, often movingly. And it is also in this genre that TV chooses to be present in its versions of more general breakdown of the family issues, domestic violence, divorce, incest, alcoholism, unemployment. In fact, in its better moments, Movie of the Week is TV's finest hour. And she took a heavy look at how television upheld the more conservative values of family. She wrote, quote, structurally, all feature-length TV movies follow a few given rules. They all begin and end with the family. All other matters are subsumed into the never-questioned ideal institution, end quote. And of course, the film ends not just with Libby reuniting with her mother, but also with the wedding, which absolutely upholds Rapping's theories. And the wedding was something that some critics didn't care for. You know, even Maslin in her review said Bill's character felt worn out and that Warren marries him anyway. But in this way, I think it's as though Rachel had to get married to uphold the sort of conventional system of the nuclear family. But I don't know that rapping always made room for the critiques that films could have on suburbia. For one, Maybe I'll Come Home in the Spring and Off the Minnesota Strip do not follow rapping's rules and actually show a nuclear family in great distress, possibly because they have chosen to stay together, right? And sure, Turner gives us this kind of tidy ending for Rachel and Libby, um, and it's a good one. I don't want to diminish that. But she's also given life to the possibility of being unconventional. Bill, Amanda, Ron, all of those characters from the Carney circuit will survive and continue to thrive in their chosen environment because they have found each other. It's more that Libby needed to see that all families have ups and downs and sadness and celebrations. But she had to have this different road to travel to get there. And again, this is one of the things that makes the film so amazing. It's open and it's honest, and it's telling us this private story, you know, a story that speaks to all of us as we were living in the 1980s and adjusting to the changing face of family. So I really hope you've enjoyed this commentary. You know, I've been reading a lot of Elaine's rapping work, 
and it's been wonderful to kind of work with her thoughts and put this track together and I'm just beside myself that Freedom is getting this release uh, it totally deserves it and there's an awful lot of good small screen dramas to discover and rediscover uh, Freedom is a very good place to start if this is the beginning of your adventure so thank you very much for listening again my name is Amanda Reyes and I'm the editor and co-author of Are You in the House Alone a TV movie compendium 1964 to 1999 Bye.